Hello, everyone. You're listening to The Katie Helper Show, and I'm your host, Katie Helper. If you like the show, please leave us a five-star review on iTunes. And as always, remind you that this show could not happen without the support of our listeners. To support the show, visit patreon.com slash the Katie Helper Show, where for just $1 a month, you can help make the show happen. And for $5 a month, you'll qualify for great bonus content, including alternative podcast feed and rarely seen clips that aired on our live shows. Hello and welcome to the Katie Helper Show. So excited to be back with you here. Very excited about today's show. We have coming back to the show once again. We always love talking to him. Norman Solomon to talk about his latest book, War Made Invisible. Before we talk about that, though, just a couple announcements. So please like the stream. That's an easy way to support the show. Also, if you haven't already, please subscribe. You hit subscribe and then you hit the bell. We have made it past the 100,000 subscribers number, which we're very excited about. And we want to get to even more. Let's get to 200,000. Let's get to 300,000. Half a million. We can do it. Yeah, that's right. Want to thank, as always, Brad, Tyler, and Fantimus Fanta for their support during the show. And also, happy birthday, Tyler. It was Tyler's birthday. So happy birthday, Tyler, my fellow July birthday haver. What else? If you can support the show at Patreon, please do that. Patreon.com slash the Katie Helper Show. Again, that's Patreon.com slash the Katie Helper Show. For just $1 a month, you get to make the show happen. We really seriously, truly could not do the show without you, not just saying that. And if you can support us at the $5 a month level, you'll be very glad you did that because that gives you all sorts of extra content, extended interviews, bonus interviews, Highly recommend that. And all of that is at patreon.com slash the Katie Helper Show. This week's Patreon only is a full hour-long interview with Jan Kavan, who is a Czech diplomat. He talks to us about how the war in Ukraine could actually be negotiated. And we'll also be showing a clip of that today during the show. So all of that is to say so many reasons to become Patreon supporters of the Katie Helper Show. I think that's all the announcements. I think we're just going to bring on our guests. Very excited to be talking to, once again, Norman Solomon. He is co-founder of RootsAction.org, executive director of the Institute for Public Accuracy. His books include War Made Easy, Made Love Got War, and his newest book, War Made Invisible, How America Hides the Human Toll of Its Military Machine. Welcome, Norman. Very glad to be here. Thanks. Thank you. Thanks for coming. You bet. Tell us what made you want to write this book in the first place. Well, I've been really active as an organizer, as a writer, as somebody dealing with the now perennial so-called war on terror um, ever since, well, the beginning of this century, basically. And I hadn't written a book for 15 years. I've been busy, as I say, organizing and trying to, I can't make sense out of, I can't say it makes sense out of it all because it's uh, uh, a difficult challenge to understand all these different factors that are just in many ways uh, buffeting the world in such negative uh, respects. But I uh, grasped that while my previous book, War Made Easy, was documenting ways in which the United States was trying to work its way on the world militarily, and the U.S. public was being basically scammed into going along with it, or at least not vigorously opposing it, something has gradually evolved in the last decade and more, which is the so-called boots on the ground are becoming fewer and fewer from the United States. The reliance on air power, drones, and so forth um, has become more extreme. And since Americans are not dying in very many numbers anymore, the, you might say, jingo narcissism of the United States has really kicked in. So the U.S. is at war, despite what Biden said uh, almost two years ago in a speech to the United Nations, and it's become virtually invisible, hence the title, War Made Invisible. You know, I was reading a very good review of your book at Truth Out by Jonathan Eng, and he writes, Solomon highlights three underlying facets of U.S. power that are, spe- are especially useful for interpreting our current moment, an embedded intelligentsia, an economy that exports violence, and the infrastructure of a global empire. So can you talk a little bit about these three facets and how they interact with each other? And again, 
in case you don't have in front of you, that is the embedded intelligentsia, an economy that exports violence, and the infrastructure of a global empire. Yeah, I think that's a very perceptive review and really breaks down three key elements. In terms of intelligentsia, I mean, the fact is that we have tremendous mass media power, as I say in the book, to repetition and omission. Uh, The drumbeats, the catchphrases, the assumptions that the United States has the prerogative to get its way militarily as much as it can around the world, that we're light onto the nation's uh, phrase that the Democratic Party so-called leadership developed under Hillary Clinton. Uh, We are an indispensable nation, all of that stuff. And it's propagated, and you might say filters down. But uh, what passes for the intelligentsia anyway is where a lot of it is cooked up. And so we might look back to the Vietnam War era and the so-called best and the brightest that David Halberstam labeled them at, Walt Rostow and these people who came out of Harvard and Yale and so forth. But that whole uh, effort still has a lot of its parallels. I mean, if you look at the way that the United States uh, public was dragged into the wars on Afghanistan and Iraq, that whole impetus came from so-called intellectuals, uh, really well-educated people, upper crust. It really wasn't Fox News that dragged the United States into war, so much as the New York Times, the Washington Post, All Things Considered, Morning Edition, the PBS NewsHour. And those folks tout themselves as really part of the intelligentsia and also drew on some of these uh, armchair thinkers, the, the laptop warriors in the elite newsrooms of the Times and the Post, uh, these very prestigious think tanks that are often so heavily funded by, and I'm not going to say defense contractors, I'm going to say military contractors, and those who have uh, risen in the ranks of of a lot of elite colleges. Not all of the elite professors are of that frame of mind, but basically it's a get-along to go along with the warfare state mentality. So that would be uh, the intelligentsia and the way it filters down. It's a kind of a a trickle-down of a mentality that has such useful uh, and powerful propaganda effects. Then if we deal with the economy, it's just so damn lucrative to kill a lot of people, to have the weapons of war that are so lucrative. And of course, initially in the early years after uh, 9-11, It was a little bit of a stretch that all this military spending uh, was going to stop people with box cutters from killing us. But there was a tremendous rationale, of course, a push for the invasions of Afghanistan and Iraq. It really wasn't even the military-industrial complex only. It was the military-industrial intelligence surveillance complex that grew. You know, you can go from BWI Airport near Baltimore all the way to the ring around the Pentagon just making a killing, literally and figuratively, and it was a it was a bullish on uh, on the warfare state uh, environment that has not ended, and uh, we've got four presidents, I suppose, yes, in this century, and they've all been part of it. It's very bipartisan. It's just so lucrative. Uh, we used to, during the Vietnam War, say uh, very unhappily, sardonically, and angrily, "War is good business. Invest your son." Now it's more like war's good business, invest in Raytheon and Boeing and Northrop Grumman, because it's more and more aerospace. It's more and more, oh, let's be above it all, which is really what uh, President Obama promised when he gave a speech in September uh, 2021 to the United Nations. He said, we're no longer at war because the U.S. troops had been withdrawn from Afghanistan. It It was a complete lie. And soon after that, even the news media of the U.S. reported Uh, missile attacks uh, in Syria, a thousand troops there, essentially combat troops, Somalia, airstrikes, uh, troops in Africa. As a matter of fact, uh, a lot of special ops. Special ops, it's mind-blowing. I quote Nick Terse, the great journalist, more than 100 countries, really most of the countries on the planet, have U.S. special ops stationed. I mean, it's just this prerogative assumption. uh, And that leads us to the third of those three points, empire. One of, I think, the most powerful aspects and passages in my book, War Made Invisible, is an interview with Daniel Ellsberg, the great Pentagon Papers whistleblower and the great activist for more than 50 years after he risked life in prison to expose the realities of the Vietnam War by disclosing the Pentagon Papers. 
And in the interview, which I, I did with Dan about uh, a year and a half ago at his house uh, in the East Bay near San Francisco, he talked about the assumptions of empire and the ways in which we in the United States are so encouraged pretty much successfully to accept and embrace, without the word being used, that the U.S. is an empire, should be an empire. And essentially that, as he put it, why would we worry very much about what our militarism is doing to other people in the world because we're better than them? That is the tacit assumption. It's kind of like being a fish who is wet in water and doesn't even realize it. Like we don't even realize we have an empire. Absolutely. I think that's a a very um, clear and appropriate way to look at it as a metaphor. And in terms of propaganda assaults, I mean, they ebb and flow. Sometimes it's more um, overt and noticeable than others. But generally, it's more like a gas in the room. It's more like uh, water on a stone. I mean, it's so constant, the assumptions, just one of many examples, which I go into in the book. And this is true of many anti-war people. I mean, I've written three or four articles about this in this century, uh, pretty ineffectually, apparently. Even anti-war people keep referring to the defense budget, the defense spending. My friends, this is not defense spending. This is not defense budget. Yes, it's called capital D defense, capital D department. But when we talk lowercase, we shouldn't call it defense because that's not what it's about. 750 U.S. military bases around the world, U.S. spending as much as the next 10 countries combined, most of them are allies in terms of military expenditures. So we are part of an empire just de facto by living in the United States, whether we renounce it or not. And a lot of the reason uh, why I wrote the War Made Invisible book is that I think it's like if we're going to have constructive responses, walking on two legs, and most of us are lucky enough to be able to do that. One is the information, the analysis, support for independent media like the Katie Halper Show, essential. And the other is organizing and action. And that's why I'm really so glad to work with my colleagues at rootsaction.org. We're about not only sharing information, but every day on the site we have, progressivehub.net, we describe the problem, we analyze it, and then we say, here's what you can do about it. And I would just sort of sum up, Katie, by saying that mass media and often other media as well encourage us to be passive, to consume history like Wonder Bread or the equivalent in real time, and really only encourage us to buy things and maybe vote once in a while. That is just a prescription for disaster, which is already unfolding militarily, socially, economically. And I think we could take a page from the AIDS activists beginning in the 1980s. The motto was silence equals death. And that's very true in 2023. Yeah. Your book focuses both on the war on terror, also on Ukraine, and also has a section on media. And I wanted to ask you about a particular person, Ashley Banfield, who was at MSNBC as a reporter. She got into a lot of trouble over a speech that she delivered at a university in Kansas. I'm going to show part of that speech, but can you just set up what happened, who she was? Yes. Ashley Banfield was a rising star at MSNBC and NBC. Uh, She, at first made a name for herself in Canadian TV. She came to the United States, and she happened to be uh, near the Twin Towers uh, on the day of 9-11 and did live reports. Then she was sent by NBC to many countries in the Middle East, Afghanistan, Iraq. She covered the invasion and the military aftermath. And uh, several weeks uh, later, uh, soon after Saddam Hussein, his regime fell, she spoke at a campus, Kansas uh, University campus, campus uh, in uh, that would have been uh, mid late spring, and ironically, it was in the the city of Manhattan, Kansas. And the people at the other Manhattan uh, NBC headquarters they freaked out uh, when she gave the speech. It was a real lapse 
on the part of her as a mass media journalist. She was actually truthful. Right. So let's show this truthful moment. Then we can talk more about how they responded to her. But let's see what this what this was that she said that was so wound up so controversial. A lot of journalists who were skeptical of this embedding process before we all embarked on this kind of news coverage before this campaign. Um, many thought that this was just another element of propaganda from the American government. I suppose you could look at it that way. It certainly did show the American side of things because that's where we were shooting from. But it also showed what can go wrong. It also gave journalists, including Al Jazeera journalists and Arab television journalists and Arab newspaper journalists who were also embedded, it also gave them the opportunity to see without any kinds of censorship how these fights were being fought, how these soldiers were behaving, what the civil affairs soldiers were doing, and what the humanitarian assistance really looked like. Was it just a line we were being fed, or were they really on the ground with boxes of water and boxes of food? Uh, so for that element alone, it was a wonderful new arm of access that journalists got to warfare. Perhaps not that new, because we all knew what it looked like in Vietnam and what a disaster that was for, uh, for the government. But this did put us in a very, very close uh, line of sight to the unfolding disasters. That said, what didn't you see? You didn't see where those bullets landed. You didn't see what happened when the mortar landed. A puff of smoke is not what a mortar looks like when it explodes, believe me. There are horrors that were completely left out of this war. So was this journalism or was this coverage? There is a grand difference between journalism and coverage. And getting access does not mean you're getting the story. It just means you're getting one more arm or leg of the story. And that's what we got. And it was a glorious, wonderful picture that had a lot of people watching and a lot of advertisers excited about cable news. But it wasn't journalism, because I'm not so sure that we in America are hesitant to do this again, to fight another war, because it looked like a glorious and courageous and so successful, terrific endeavor. And we got rid of a horrible leader. We got rid of a dictator. We got rid of a monster. But we didn't see what it took to do that. So there she was, April 2003, making this speech. And we're going to get into the fallout from that. But what, what do you think, what stands out for you and what she says here? What really stands out to me can be summed up in four of the words that she used with a question mark at the end. What didn't you see? That's a really powerful question. It sort of reminds me of the story, The Emperor's New Clothes, that a lot of us grew up with. Just breaking that silence, just saying the emperor, or in this case, the empire has no clothes. It's very simple. It's very direct. And she did it. What didn't you see was a question. And then she explained what we didn't see as news consumers. And really, in a way, that's a, a keynote of, of my book, We're Made Invisible, because it's the invisibility of what's being done then and now in our names with our tax dollars as U.S. citizens, or at least taxpayers. That is a taboo that she broke to actually talk about what you and I as mass media consumers didn't see. And can you talk about the fallout? Well, everything hit the fan. Her career was basically over. The uh, bosses at NBC in uh, Manhattan, New York, immediately issued statements one after another saying that Ashley Banfield does not speak for NBC or MSNBC, that Ashley Banfield did not mean to impugn the integrity of her colleagues, and that she would never do that again. What those statements didn't add was that she would never do that again as an NBC or MSNBC employee because management saw to it that she basically would be off the air. She got back to New York City, and NBC generated as much bad press about her as they could, and then they basically put her in a tape closet for about a year. She could not get out of her contract, although she tried, 
And she was, uh, eventually they put a computer in the tape closet, and it was just very vindictive. It was an object lesson that was understood, I think, by many journalists. And just broadly, when it comes to foreign policy coverage, those who really step out of line, they will pay the price. And really, for journalists in a major media outlet, you've got a few choices. You can go along to career get along. You can, and this happens very occasionally, step out of line as she did, or you can just quit. Or you might just hit a uh, not-so-glass ceiling or, or be uh, laid off. Right. Yeah, and that was what was so, you, you quote her uh, discussing what happened, and she couldn't even break out of her contract. I mean, it was almost like sadistic. They made her stay there, and they put her in a tape, literal tape closet that had tapes in it that they emptied out for her to be in. Um, another person you mention, uh, you, you write about, is Phil Donahue. Can you tell us about what happened to him during the uh, Iraq War? Phil Donahue came to MSNBC with tremendous name recognition. And in 2002, he started what was on then a very fledgling network, the Phil Donahue Show. And it was the top-rated uh, show that in that uh, primetime uh, slot. And he was doing very well. However, he had the temerity to include in the mix of guests people actually who were raising critical questions in opposition to the impending invasion of Iraq. And so in the months that went by, uh, the end of 2002, that raised increasing concerns among NBC, MSNBC management. It's really the same mentality with a different era that reigns supreme at MSNBC now, I might add. And so as the, as it turned out, invasion of Iraq became uh, more imminent, the pressure increased. I, I quote Jeff Cohen, who was a senior producer on The Donahue Show and I've worked with for many years. He says that there were meetings held where management said, if you're going to have one anti-war guest, you have to have two pro-war guests. And then you have to have three pro-war guests. It just got, it got crazy that way. And then suddenly, a few weeks before the invasion, the show was abruptly canceled and Donahue was suddenly off the air. Some might say, well, you know, maybe that's a coincidence. Maybe there are other factors. However, a memo leaked from the top of NBC management. And the memo said that we're very concerned that Donahue delights in bringing anti-war guests on the air. And this will make us look bad in comparison to the flag wavers at CNN and Fox. So, that, again, was another object lesson. So it seems like you have these kind of overt examples of backlash and um, effective censorship. But something else that you write about is how sometimes you don't even need to do this kinds of censorship, these kinds of censorship, because it's almost built in. As you rise in the ranks, you already know what to say or what not to say. Can you talk about this kind of almost like preemptive censorship? For many people getting into the profession, and of course, we're all young once, at least. I don't know about reincarnation. I tend to doubt that. And so when people come into a profession, they're usually young. And what is viewed as tacitly or explicitly as being professional is what those who are more advanced in their careers are actually doing and not doing. And so that's well understood. Whatever might be taught in journalism school I remember speaking with uh, the great uh, former managing editor of the Washington Post, Ben Bagdikian, who wrote a number of editions of his book, The Media Monopoly, ended up at the University of California, Berkeley Journalism School as dean. And he said that he would talk to students about the real principles of journalism, independence, truly without fear or favor, having a multiplicity of sources. And some would say to him, well, Professor Bagdikian, uh, I really appreciate uh, what you're teaching, but it's just going to make me unhappy when I work for Gannett or the New York Times or whatever. And so there is that cognitive dissonance of what flies. I mean, in other countries, some other countries, dictatorships, journalists step out of line, they might go to prison. They might even be shot. What are journalists in the United States in mainstream media afraid of? losing their jobs, having their hours cut, 
not being able to pay their mortgages. I mean, that's a mechanism of control. So on the other side of the uh, career discussion, we have people like um, Thomas Friedman, who has never really faced any consequences for his journalism, despite being a cheerleader for Iraq. Not only was he a cheerleader for Iraq kind of initially, but he was even asked about his views on Iraq by Charlie Rose. So here he is during an interview with Charlie Rose. And of course, Thomas Friedman is a um, a New York Times op-ed columnist. So let's hear what he had to say. Now that the war is over and there's some difficulty with the peace, was it worth doing? I think it was unquestionably um, uh, worth doing, Charlie. Um, And I, I think that looking back, I now certainly feel I understand more what the war was about. Um, And it's interesting to talk about it here um, in Silicon Valley, because um, I think looking back at the 1990s, uh, I can identify that there are actually three bubbles of the 1990s. There was the NASDAQ bubble. There was the corporate governance bubble. And um, lastly, there was what I would call the terrorism bubble. And the first two were based on creative accounting. The last was based on moral creative accounting. The terrorism bubble that basically built up over the 1990s said, flying airplanes into the World Trade Center, that's okay. Wrapping yourself with dynamite and blowing up Israelis in a pizza parlor, that's okay. Because we're weak and they're strong and the weak have a different morality. Having your preachers say that's okay, that's okay. Having your charities raise money for people who do these kinds of things, that's okay. And having your press call people who do these kind of things martyrs, that's okay. And that built up as a bubble, Charlie. And 9-11 to me was the the peak of that bubble. And what we learned on 9-11 in a gut way was that that bubble was a fundamental threat to our open society. Because there is no wall high enough, no INS agent smart enough, no metal detector efficient enough to protect an open society from people motivated by that bubble. And what we needed to do was go over to that part of the world, I'm afraid, and burst that bubble. We needed to go over there, basically, um, and um, uh, take out a very big stick um, right in the heart of, of that world. And, um, and burst that bubble. And there was only one way to do it. Because part of that bubble said, we've got you. This bubble is actually going to level the balance of power between us and you because we don't care about money. We're ready to sacrifice, and all you care about are your stock options and your hummers. And what they needed to see was American boys and girls going house to house, from Basra to Baghdad, um, and basically saying, which part of this sentence don't you understand? You don't think, you know, we care uh, about our open society? You think this bubble fantasy, we're just going to let it grow? Well, suck on this. Okay? That, Charlie, was what this war was about. We could have hit Saudi Arabia. It, it was part of that bubble. Could have hit Pakistan. We hit Iraq because we could. That's the real truth. And the mess. So... That's what he said on television, not behind closed doors, not on a hot mic. That's what he said uh, a bit more bluntly than what usually has filtered through his Pulitzer Prize winning commentaries for 30 years at least. It's really symptomatic that Thomas Friedman is extremely popular on so-called public broadcasting, on NPR, on PBS. We should remember... uh, Charlie Rose, who eventually got, got me tooed, justifiably, so he, his career hit a wall. But Charlie Rose, also on 60 Minutes as a correspondent, Rose extremely popular, supposedly intelligentsia. He used to kiss the feet of Henry Kissinger and so forth in his interviews. That's standard. That's sort of the mentality. And so, again, yes, Fox News is proto-fascist at this point, but the so-called liberal media the PBSs, the NPRs, the New York Times, they were a source of promulgating this attitude, maybe not usually so bluntly, 
It's clear, and I have many examples in this book about Thomas Friedman. He's a sadist, but it's wrapped up in the American flag. So that's okay. Several years before that interview, during 1999, he wrote for the New York Times a series of columns that I quote in the book, where he called for more and more bombardment of civilian areas. He basically called for war crimes when the United States was leading the NATO bombing of Yugoslavia and Kosovo. He said that if the government of Yugoslavia wouldn't give up, that the U.S. should keep bombing more and more intensely civilian infrastructure, which is a war crime. Get rid of the electricity and the water. What about people who need refrigerated medicine? What about people who are children or the elderly? Not a problem. He said, if the government did not succumb to the demands of U.S.-led NATO warfare, then the United States could bomb them back to the 15th century. This is unbelievable, perhaps, except he wrote it and the New York Times published it. No problem, not a ripple of uh, pushback from the so-called uh, enlightened um, intellectual media outlets. Again, this is not uh, Newsmax. This is people who were told are Democratic Party aligned, very forward-looking, humanistic folks. So after he was calling for essentially war crimes in 1999 over Yugoslavia, uh, a few years later, he won the Pulitzer Prize for commentary. And I should add that when you look at some of the favorite radio programs nationally, for instance, Fresh Air, hosted by Terry Gross. Now, Terry Gross and that entire program, they love Thomas Friedman. They've had him on many, many times. And when you look at coverage of foreign policy in general, it's a regular parade of journalists from the New York Times and the Washington Post and the New Yorker. All of them, all of those outlets cheerleading the war on Afghanistan, the war on Iraq, and the current U.S. policies towards Ukraine. Hmm. Yeah, speaking of war crimes, you uh, had a, a piece that you just wrote about the cluster munitions and the hypocrisy in the United States giving uh, Ukraine cluster munitions. Can you expand on this? Yeah, I spent uh, a fair amount of time uh, working on this book, researching and then writing about uh, cluster munitions. And I have several pages in the book about them. Uh, the United States has a history of using cluster munitions. And like Russia and Ukraine, the U.S. has never signed the international treaty banning them. That's been uh, ratified by more than 130 countries. Actually, the bombing of uh, Yugoslavia that not only Thomas Friedman, but essentially the vast majority of corporate media were so fond of, included use of cluster munitions. And I quoted one uh, journalistic account, which didn't get uh, much uh, travel in the U.S. Uh, in Nice on an afternoon, people went shopping at the farmer's market, and then the cluster munitions hit, and uh, a woman is, is found uh, dead clutching her carrots in a pool of blood. This is what cluster munitions are. They're, um, according to really uh, humane observers, neutral observers, one of the most uh, horrific weapons of modern warfare, which is saying something. These thousands and thousands of so-called bomblets that explode, go horizontally, send shrapnel into what the industry calls soft targets, which is to say human beings. And so in the book, I write about how the U.S. then proceeded to use cluster munitions with the 2001 invasion of Afghanistan. And then when the invasion of Iraq happened in 2003, uh, the United States used, according to the Congressional Research Service, which I quote in this book, the U.S. used between 1.8 and two million bomblets, these shards, these uh, named bomblets, but shards uh, of uh, shrapnel, two million of them essentially in the first three weeks of the invasion of Iraq. Fast forward to about 18 months ago when the horrible, and I think indefensible, we can explain why it happened, but it's not justifiable, when Russia did its invasion of Ukraine and has continued to make war on that country. The U.S. news media and the White House quite properly condemned 
the use of cluster munitions. And there were all sorts of front page and other uh, moralistic rhapsodies about how terrible these um, cluster munitions were that Russians were using. And they were and are really terrible. So you, you go from early last year to a few weeks ago, and wouldn't you know it, suddenly cluster munitions in the hands of the righteous, which is to say the United States government handing over to the Ukrainian military, they aren't bad weapons. Actually, they're good weapons. This is really a exercise, and there's tremendous uh, quantities of them, exercise in Orwellian pseudo-thinking, double-think. And yet, for most of the news media, making that tie, pointing out the hypocrisy, is really not considered in U.S. media to be among their missions. Right, and I pointed this out um, with Medea Benjamin, but on one of the other shows that I do, Useful Idiots with Aaron Mate, where we show the Sunday morning news shows, you had a Ukrainian ambassador being interviewed by Margaret Brennan on Face the Nation. She was asked about these cluster munitions, and she was like, Margaret Brennan said, Russia uses them against civilians. I, I have to assume you won't be using them on civilians. And the Ukrainian ambassador is like, of course not. Oh, that's craziness. It's just insane. Of course, that's the nature of those weapons is that they kill a lot of civilians with the New York Times and other outlets. Forthrightly reported 18 months ago when the news broke that Russians were doing it. I think, Katie, it's really revealing as well what the explanations were for why the United States would ship these previously denounced weapons to Ukraine. Back the uh, middle of May, the ranking member of the House Armed Services Committee, Adam Smith, who until this year was uh, chair of the uh, Armed Services Committee, gave a speech to that august body, the Center, uh, Center, the Center um, on Foreign Relations, Committee on Foreign Relations, CFR. And he broached, he brought up this idea. He was asked about cluster munitions, and he said, well, I'm open to it. Well, this was sort of, should have been news, and I wrote about it in a piece for The Hill. Why? Did he say it would be perhaps necessary to ship cluster munitions to Ukraine? Well, he said, Ukraine is running out of other weapons, other armaments. And the United States has an overflow supply of cluster munitions. So we really ought to look at the fact that we want Ukraine to win. They don't have enough uh, weaponry. We're at full speed, full tilt, trying to manufacture as many as we can. So are other NATO countries, but we're not able to keep up. So the unthinkable has become thinkable and then become, we think, actually really wise to unload this huge quantity of stockpiled cluster munitions and send them uh, to Ukraine. Well, uh, several weeks after that uh, talk by Adam Smith to CFR, the White House gradually warmed further to the idea and then, of course, announced that the shipments of cluster munitions would take place to Ukraine. One of the fascinating aspects and really dire and really outrageous factors here, which I haven't seen in mass media, is that the same rationale that the White House and uh, the punditocracy has tried to excuse for shipping these weapons, uh, these horrible weapons to Ukraine same rationale could be used for shipping and using tactical nuclear weapons. It's part of Russian and U.S. military doctrine, very openly, that if you're losing a conventional war, you retain the option to start using nuclear weapons. So it's sort of a uh, prototype. We're losing. We might have to make the unthinkable thinkable. Now, what is the media not doing? What is the media doing wrong in its coverage of this for instance, the point you just made that I haven't seen that made elsewhere. The media has a very childlike narrative about this war, the war in Ukraine. What do you think a responsible media would be doing in terms of setting up the conflict that's happening right now in Ukraine? Well, thank you so much. And everyone really make sure you read War Made Invisible. It's a great book. And thank you so much, Norman, for all that you do. You're organizing, you're writing, and talking to us. 
Thanks a lot, Katie. And that was Norman Solomon. And if you are watching this live, you are in so much luck because you got to see that full interview. And if you're watching this later to see the full interview where we talk about the 2024 race, Biden's challengers, make sure you go to patreon.com slash the Katie Helper Show. Again, that's patreon.com slash the Katie Helper Show. We're going to play a short preview of another interview that's Patreon only, which is with Jan Kavan, who is a Czech former politician and diplomat. And it's all about diplomacy since uh, no one's talking about that, except for some of the people we have on this show. But let's take a look at that. And then again, this whole interview with Jan Kavan will be available at patreon.com as well as a chunk of Norman Solomon's interview that we just did. Welcome, Jan. Thank you so much for joining. Thank you for inviting me. Of course. So you issued an appeal for peace against the war. You did this from the Czech Republic. I wanted to know why you did that and what your thoughts are on the war, both how it started, but also how it can be stopped. Um, yeah, to put it in a context, early this year, uh, in January, with several colleagues of mine, uh, we set up a peace initiative called Peace and Justice. So in the name of this initiative, we made an appeal um, to our government, but also other governments, to stop sending arms to uh, Ukraine, because we believe that sending weapons only prolongs the war. And we asked in this appeal for an immediate ceasefire and opening of uh, peace negotiations, diplomatic uh, uh, solution. Um, obviously, um, it's a controversial issue, and we we were aware from the very beginning that many people will disagree, in particular with the issue of ceasefire, because um, even some of our colleagues and members of parliament argued that um, a ceasefire will only help the Russian side because when if the West stops sending arms and weapons to uh, Ukraine, Ukraine will be militarily defeated by Russia. I think that uh, it's a it's a dangerous misinterpretation of uh, of our call. Uh, we made it very clear from the very very beginning that any ceasefire will have to be observed by both sides. One side in ceasefire will not be able to 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 work. And only a ceasefire which is observed and negotiated and agreed upon by both sides will, in our opinion, create sufficient space for diplomats to replace generals and soldiers, come in and sit around the table and begin uh, negotiations about a peaceful solution to this conflict. Um, we have agreed, even with some American experts, including uh, U.S. Uh, General Mark Milley, that there is no military solution. Neither side is able to militarily decisively defeat the other. And sending arms to Ukraine will only uh, prolong the war and lead to greater devastation of the country, to more people being killed, um, and it will not bring about end of the war um, and end of the uh, suffering, which is why we stress that, uh, although we understand that negotiations are difficult, but a ceasefire is extremely necessary to be agreed upon as soon as possible because any every, uh, every day uh, the war continues um, Thousands of people on both sides are being are being killed. Uh, so this is this is our argument. The argument also is that um, obviously so much bloodshed has been uh, uh, and so much hatred that there is no possibility, or at least we don't believe there is a possibility for both sides to agree on a ceasefire. There would have to be. Uh, a powerful intermediary. There are already some precedents, like uh, already on 8th of February, 
last year, before the war started, uh, French President Macron agreed with both uh, President Putin and President Zelensky to sign an agreement on uh, uh, neutrality of Ukraine. But the following day, President Zelensky changed his mind after uh, we understand uh, uh, talking to his American friends. In March, in Istanbul, with the help of the Turkish President uh, Erdogan and the UN, once again an agreement was reached on uh, uh, neutrality. And again, when Zelensky returned to Kiev, uh, he changed his mind following a visit by the then British Prime Minister Boris Johnson, who asked him uh, uh, to continue to fight with the full support of President Biden of the United States. So uh, we know it is difficult, and therefore uh, we hope that a powerful group of intermediaries will step in and arrange for the ceasefire and the uh, diplomatic talks. At the moment, we believe that uh, such a group of intermediaries will be almost certainly led by China, will be joined by the Brazilian president, Lula da Silva, who already uh, made clear that he supports uh, such a solution. And then, once uh, these two important actors will make their position clear, I think it will be joined by Turkey, France, Germany, and, uh, and, and some others. And obviously, any agreement would have to be uh, guaranteed and supervised, in my opinion, by uh, by United Nations. Um, the negotiations will be long, painful, and difficult. Uh, both sides will have to make some concessions, and this is not going to be easy. I do believe that despite the uh, verbal declarations of NATO leaders, including uh, top American politicians, that uh, the West, the collective West, should support Ukraine um, as long as it as long as it takes, uh, or until final victory, uh, as President Zelensky frequently uses that term. Um, I think that they know that this is nonsense, that this is uh, non-realistic. Um, that's why I think they uh, are looking for uh, an improvement on the. Uh, on the battlefield, uh, I think they were hoping that the current Ukrainian offensive will be more successful than it is. Then it would uh, improve the position of the Ukrainian army and therefore create a better position for the negotiations. I think that everybody, if they admit it publicly or not, everybody is convinced that uh, uh, there is no other solution but... Uh, uh, diplomatic solution, but they, both sides are trying to work or manipulate, create a situation which will be more advantageous to them for uh, the negotiations, because obviously each side wants to negotiate from the position of strength. In fact, that will not happen. Um, I do believe that uh, the intermediaries should come with some proposals, constructive proposals, which may be acceptable to both sides. In my opinion, and the opinion of my colleagues here in my in our peace initiative, we believe that uh, the framework would have to be an agreement uh, that uh, Ukraine will not join uh, NATO, because that's the red line for the Russians, um, and have been since... Uh, uh, 2007, when President Putin made it clear uh, publicly at international conferences and repeated it many times since then. If it's uh, uh, rational or not, uh, I don't want to comment, but those of us who know Russian history are aware that uh, all Russian leaders, um, presidents, communist leaders, Hours before, were always afraid of encirclement, 
uh, but always afraid of uh, foreign invasions. Um, as I said, I don't want to comment if it's rational or not, but we have to take it into account that this is how they think. So I fully understood when uh, in 1991, the last Soviet President Gorbachev asked uh, President Bush and Chancellor Kohl uh, that uh, they should promise not to move NATO uh, eastwards if he agrees to withdraw Soviet troops from uh, GDR, from East Germany, which is what they asked him because they wanted East Germany uh, to be unified with West Germany and to join NATO. And State Secretary James Baker at the time made it very clear that um, NATO will not move one inch, inch eastwards if we, if I quote him. Unfortunately, Gorbachev was, um, sorry to put it like that, naive enough to, to believe uh, a spoken word, a spoken promise by top Western leaders and didn't ask for a binding signed peace agreement. Therefore, we only have recordings, memories of uh, officials who attended those meetings. Um, I've read about 300 pages of them and I'm absolutely convinced that uh, this is the case and that unfortunately uh, the West has not uh, fulfilled their promise. Um, and uh, since 1991, uh, NATO has moved closer and closer to Russian borders. Um, if Ukraine would join NATO, that in the Russian eyes would definitely uh, be a security threat. Uh, and uh, this is uh, this is a situation in which uh, military conflicts uh, take place. And those who, those in the West who believe that we should fight to the last Ukrainian and send more and more sophisticated weapons to Ukrainians in order to ensure uh, victory of Ukraine, I think naively forget that Russia is still a nuclear superpower. And this is a very risky behavior. In a hypothetical situation where, for example, with the help of Western weapon, uh, modern weaponry, Ukraine will uh, be on the verge of uh, taking back Crimea, which is extremely important to Russia. I think at that moment, um, there is no guarantee that President Putin will not uh, resort to the use of, say, tactical nuclear weapon. And then we are on a very slippery, slippery slope to a, a nuclear holocaust, which I believe nobody, nobody wants to see. I'm therefore convinced that we should not play with such a risky situation, that we should not uh, uh, even allow this to, uh, to happen. That's why we are asking for immediate ceasefire and, and negotiations. I'm absolutely convinced that if the conditions, the circumstances are correct, Russia may be prepared to withdraw from some of the territories they now occupy and keep their uh, soldiers on, on two territories, on Donbass, that is on those two uh, separatist uh, republics, uh, Luhansk and Donetsk, um, and in Crimea. I can't believe that uh, there is any possibility, even a distant possibility, of Ukraine, um, if I use the terminology of President Zelensky, liberating Crimea, i.e. militarily uh, defeating Russian troops in, uh, in Crimea. And I think even attempting that is, as I said, risking that uh, President Putin, when put in a corner 
um, in order to avoid the, the uh, unthinkable uh, defeat, uh, could resort to the use of nuclear uh, nuclear weapon. Um, that's why uh, the uh, the slogan used also occasionally by U.S. President that we should support Ukraine as long as it takes. Um, I think is a is a is a dangerous approach. Um, we could only result in more and more people being killed, and it will not bring nearer the possibility of sitting down and and discussing peace. I also believe that any these discussions would have to include the possibility of new referenda to take place in particular in Donbas and in Crimea, and obviously not under supervision of the uh, Russian army, but under the supervision of United Nations. And if in such a referenda, majority of the Russian-speaking population in these territories will reject the possibility of um, uh, being reintegrated into Ukraine, that would have to be respected by the international international community, which, in my opinion, unfortunately, sometimes resorts to double standards. Um, what was allowed in Kosovo is not allowed in uh, in uh, in Caucasian, in uh, in Ossetia, in uh, Abkhazia. Um, I remember long time ago, President Obama. In one speech, in the same breath, raised the principle of self-determination uh, linked to the protests uh, which took place in the Maidan Square in in, uh, in Kiev, which eventually led to the downfall of uh, uh, democratically elected President Yanukovych, and uh, at the same time rejected any application of the principle of self-determination in Crimea. Um, I think uh, the West would, should agree that principle of self-determination should be respected, should be applied, should be implemented, but there should not be double standards. Um, that undermines the, uh, uh, the authenticity, that undermines the whole uh, uh, principle as such. So, I very much hope that uh, uh, we could recreate the type of international peace movement which I remember from the 70s and 80s. I was then a Czech emigre in the United Kingdom and took active part in the struggle against uh, the installation of uh, cruise and Pershing missiles in Western Europe and SS-20 uh, Soviet missiles in Eastern Europe. At that time, there was a quite powerful uh, international peace movement. Um, I remember myself working both with the British, the Dutch, the Germans, but also with uh, uh, similar groups in the, the then Czechoslovakia, Poland, uh, Slovenia. I very much hope that today, when the situation is uh, even more dangerous, we could inspire a number of the national peace groups. And I, a few days ago, attended a peace conference in Ljubljana, in Slovenia, and before that in Vienna. So I'm aware that there are a number of peace groups, but they are not properly linked. They don't cooperate. They don't coordinate. They don't yet present... Um, unified uh, position, for example, on the need for ceasefire. But I do believe that uh, the more people become aware of the dangers, and I'm very grateful to your program that you are trying to explain this to people, the more people will understand this, the greater likelihood is that the national peace groups will become international, and then they will get greater cloud, and therefore have possibility of applying more pressure on their respective governments to understand that uh, 
sending weapons to Ukraine will not bring about peace and only prolong the war. And that, therefore, that the government should cooperate to create, uh, as I said, the group of intermediaries capable of negotiating a peaceful solution to this conflict. Thanks again for listening to The Katie Helper Show. To hear the rest of that discussion, please join the Patreon at patreon.com slash the Katie Helper Show. Again, that's patreon.com slash the Katie Helper Show. If you like the show, please leave us a five-star review on iTunes. And as always, we remind you that this show could not happen without the support of our listeners. Our show is produced by me, Katie Helper. Brad Bloom is our audio engineer and an associate producer on the show. Our researcher is Joshua Bregman. And our theme song is by the band Cordova. See you next time.